the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. If we look to the answer as to why for so many years we achieved so much, prospered as no other people on earth, it was because here in this land we unleashed the energy and individual genius of man to a greater extent than has ever been done before. Those who say that we're in a time when there are no heroes, they just don't know where to look. The sloping hills of Arlington National Cemetery, with its row upon row of simple white markers, bearing crosses or stars of David, they add up to only a tiny fraction of the price that has been paid for our freedom. As for the enemies of freedom, those who are potential adversaries, they will be reminded that peace is the highest aspiration of the American people. We will negotiate for it, sacrifice for it. We will not surrender for it now or ever. We are Americans. This is the Bob France Authority on AM 1420. The answer. Yes, indeed it is, and a good morning to you as we get started at 7 minutes after the hour of 9 o'clock on this free-for-all Friday edition of The Authority. It's the 20th morning of the last month of the year of our Lord, 2019. Coming up in about a half an hour, we're going to talk to Congressman Jim Renacci, former congressman of Ohio's 16th Congressional District, now working with Ohio's Future Foundation and uh, putting in a lot, of, a, lot of, uh, a lot of long hours and a lot of good work on behalf of the citizens of the state of Ohio. He's going to join us to react to the impeachment mess, the entire uh uh, charade that it is. He is also going to talk to us about spending. This is one of the things he, of course, was a, you know, a fiscal hawk, a spending hawk, uh, when he was in the Congress. And, uh, he is not really thrilled with what is, uh, coming down the line now that the president is all but certain to sign the $1.4 trillion, uh, massive omnibus spending bill that, um, uh, President Trump, by all rights, should veto, but he will not because he's not going to put himself into a situation where he is, in addition to facing impeachment, also facing a government shutdown. If he doesn't sign the bill and government is shut down, how can they then go in there and, and uh, carry, on, carry on with the impeachment? If, indeed, uh, Nancy Pelosi sends those articles to the Senate for a trial. So President Trump is caught between a rock and a hard place here with a bad spending bill that does a lot of, uh, uh, you know, I mean, it does some good. It's it's a very solid military spending bill, but uh, it's actually broken into two parts. But uh, the other part, uh, let's just say it's questionable at best. But President Trump is not going to have many choices. He is going to have to sign it. Otherwise, he will be accused of trying to save his own skin by shutting down the government and not signing a uh, bipartisan partisan spending bill. So it uh, passed the House, it'll pass the Senate, and President Trump will have no choice but to sign it, and on we'll go with the debt skyrocketing. We are at $23 trillion and counting, and it has only gotten worse. I'll say this, with all of the wonderful economic gains that we have enjoyed in this country, 
because of President Trump's low-tax deregulation policy, tax cuts and deregulation have made businesses prosper, have made corporations prosper, have thus made workers prosper. Uh, for all of the greatness there, we are not dealing with the debt. That's just the reality of the situation. I'm not saying I'd rather do it a different way uh, with somebody other than President Trump because I don't think anybody else could have gotten the results given all of the obstacles that he has uh, faced, all of the obstruction that he has faced from the Democrats and members of his own party and the media uh, and the elites. Uh, wouldn't want to do it any other way. But also have to point out, we are not dealing with the deficit the way that we were told we would be uh, under President Trump's uh, uh, guidance. So that's where we are as we start the program today. Jim Renacci will talk to us about all of those things at 935. Last night, speaking of the economy and speaking of growth, speaking of fantastic advances made uh, under President Trump's leadership, the Democrats took the debate, spa- the debate stage rather in Los Angeles and discussed how they could destroy the economy discussed how they could destroy jobs for so many American workers. I'm not even joking about that, by the way. Elizabeth Warren's answer to every question was tax more, tax more, tax more. She is uh, followed by almost all of the Democrats in an almost lockstep type of attitude with that. The more taxes that they uh, uh, levy on the people, the more money the government gets, the more government control they have over your lives. This isn't new ground we're covering here. We're not reinventing the wheel. We are just pointing it out. Uh, this is what they believe. More, 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 more in terms of taxation and taking from those who are earning and uh, redistributing it as they see fit. So uh, Joe Biden was one of those on the Demon Rat stage last night, asked about that, and he was asked, about an acceptable level of blue-collar job losses for the implementation of some sort of version of the Green New Deal, which, of course, is one of the most ridiculously fantastical, uh, abysmal (laughs) proposals to come down the line maybe in not just modern but all of American history. The idea that we are going to literally destroy the advancements we have made in technology and industry all uh, to give the government more control over your lives, over our lives, in the name of some fantasy uh, called climate war or climate change, rather, that used to be called global warming, that used to be called global freezing, and now they admit, oh, we don't know what it's going to do. It's going to freeze or it's going to warm, but either way, it's going to change, and that's bad, and we have to stop it. Hillary Clinton famously, in the 2016 campaign, bragged about how many coal miners she was going to put out of work. She bragged about it. Last night, Joe Biden got an opportunity to do the same thing. Brag about how many blue-collar workers you are willing to put out of work in order to pursue your fantasy of a Green New Deal. Vice President Biden, I'd like to ask you, three consecutive American presidents have enjoyed stints of explosive economic growth due to a boom in oil and natural gas production. As president, would you be willing to sacrifice some of that growth, even knowing potentially that it could displace thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of blue-collar workers in the interest of transitioning to that greener economy? The answer is yes. The answer is yes. <laughs> I, uh, I watched him. Just uh, The answer is yes. I'd be willing to sacrifice 
hundreds of thousands, the question was thousands or even hundreds of thousands of blue-collar jobs in the oil and natural gas industries in order to transition to a greener economy. Now, you may just listen to that on its surface and say, whoa, I cannot believe he's willing to put you know blue-collar workers out of work like that to transition to this greener economy. But, I, but it's beyond just that. Let's listen to that so part gas of it production. Again. As president... Would you hold be on, willing to have explosive on. economic growth due to a boom in oil and natural gas production? Due to a boom in what? Due, due, due to a boom in what? Due to a boom in oil and natural gas production. That's important, and I'll tell you why in a moment. As president, would you be willing to sacrifice some of that growth, even knowing potentially that it could displace thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of blue-collar workers in the interest of transitioning to that greener economy? The answer is yes. The answer is yes. <laughs> Um, anybody else here want to point out what just struck me when I heard that last night? Anybody else have it strike them? Joe Biden is opposed to American companies that work in oil and natural gas. The oil industry and the natural gas industry which is a massive driver of the American economy, which greases the, the, the gears of the machine that is the American economy, that Americans rely upon to run their plants, to traffic their goods, etc., etc. The, the oil and natural gas industry Joe Biden is suddenly opposed to. What I'd like to know from the vice president is this. Why were you so pro-oil and natural gas when your cocaine-addled son took the job in uh, Ukraine with the oil and natural gas company Burisma to the tune of $83,000 a month? You were just fine with the oil and natural gas company and what it does to the earth and what it may do to the climate as long as your cokehead kid who got kicked out of the Navy and left his wife for his brother's widow for crying out loud, you were fine with oil and natural gas when Hunter was cashing in on it, even though he knew nothing about oil or natural gas or the Ukraine. Or Ukraine, rather. You were just fine with oil and natural gas then. I find that just a little bit hysterical. Joe Biden says, yes, let's sacrifice oil and natural gas jobs. But not my son's. Uh, He did nothing wrong. My son did nothing wrong. And by the way, if I become president, he'll never do it again. Yeah, that's, that's where we are. So last night's debate stage uh, featured some moments of insanity. That was just one of them, and we'll talk more uh, about that as we continue. Also, yesterday, uh, some speeches being made by some pretty important people. Nancy Pelosi staggered through a little mini press conference, which was started, started out being about the impeachment articles that were passed, and then staggered into the USMCA, which he is trying to somehow take credit for, President Trump's United States-Mexico-Canada trade agreement. Uh, the Speaker of the House was either A, drunk, B, baked, or C, stroking out on live television. I will play that for you 
her counterpart, meaning the majority leader in, in the Senate, Mitch McConnell, also took to the podium to say a few important things about the partisan crusade of impeachment. We're going to share that with you. We're going to hear from Representative Dan Crenshaw from Texas, Senator Lindsey Graham, Senator Ted Cruz, former White House Press Secretary Sarah Sanders, and newly minted Republican Representative Jeff Van Drew, among all other uh, um, uh, primary people in our, uh, in our cavalcade of sound that we have going for you today. So I want your reaction to it. It is a free-for-all Friday. We have Congressman, former Congressman Jim Renacci coming up at 935, but plenty of opportunity for you to be heard. 216-901-0945 and 888-281-1110. The Authority, back after this. The answer. Good Friday to you. Thank you so much for joining us. So, last night the Democrats debated. There were fewer of them on the stage. And um, when it comes to the diversity of the crowd on the stage, it uh, it seemed to be lacking just a little bit. Something that Andrew Yang made a point of mentioning. Mr. Yang, a new question. The Democratic Party relies on black, Hispanic, and Asian voters. But you are the only candidate of color on the stage tonight. And the entire field remains overwhelmingly white. What message do you think this sends to voters of color? Democrats are racists. <laughs> Andrew Yang doesn't even have to answer. I'm going to answer for him. Democrats are the only ones donating money to Democrat candidates. Democrat voters are the only ones who are polled in Democratic primary polling. And polling results are what puts people on debate stages. So if more Democrats don't like more candidates of color, it's just proving that Democrats are racist. Right, Andrew Yang? It's both an honor and disappointment to be the lone candidate of color on the stage tonight. I miss Kamala, I miss Corey, though I think Corey will be back. Why do you miss them? Aren't you trying to beat them? Wouldn't more of them dropping out or polling so low that they don't qualify debates be a, qualify for debates be a good thing for you and for everybody everybody else? I think it's hysterical. Two things. Number one, that Andrew Yang is lamenting the fact that Kamala Harris and Cory Booker aren't there. I miss them. I miss them. Why? You're running against them. This, this is, this isn't a, you don't, you all don't get to win. Why would you be in a mutual admiration society with people who are trying to defeat you and stop you from achieving your goal and your dream? But that's number one. Number two, the, the best part of this, this, um, uh, clip with Andrew Yang at the debate stage last night came from the question. Mr. Yang, a new question. The Democratic Party relies on black, Hispanic, and Asian voters. I want that to, Seriously, I want that to resonate. I want that to ring in your head. The Democrat Party relies. She didn't ask this. She declared this. The Democrat Party relies on black, Hispanic, and Asian voters. Isn't that exactly what those of us in the walk-away campaign have been saying? Isn't that exactly what uh, African-Americans, like Candace Owens, who started the Blexit movement, have been saying? Democrats rely on black, Hispanic, and Asian voters, on minority voters. 
which is why they keep them oppressed. It's why they keep black voters or, and, and uh, uh, black citizens, black workers, down. It's just very funny to me when you, you know, and, and odd and strangely satisfying when you hear them admit such a thing on a nationally televised debate. Democrats have been keeping black people particularly, but also black and Latinos, keeping them uh, depressed in terms of economics, in terms of wages, in terms of job opportunities, and thus beholden to them to provide them with basic necessities of life. Statistically speaking, and proportionately, more blacks and Hispanics are on government assistance, government housing, government EBT cards, than are whites, than the majority. Statistically speaking, and again, proportionately balanced for the population. We all know this. It's how they keep them loyal, saying, you know, you don't, you can't make it on your own. You need the government to give you more, more, more. That's why Barack Obama had more Americans in a supposed economic recovery from the recession that he presided over on food stamps than at any other time in American history. Welfare, EBT, all of these kinds of things, subsidized housing, Section 8, all of these things that the the liberal democratic government is happy to provide to as many minorities as they can because then they say, by the way, who gave you that stuff? You know, keep voting for us. They rely on minority votes. Why do you think they are in such a hurry to give driver's licenses to illegal aliens? the vast majority of which are Latino or Latina, Hispanic. Because the next thing is now that we've got them registered uh, for licenses, we can register them to vote because we know there are more of them going to vote for us. Why? Because we're the ones giving them free stuff. Republicans and conservatives have a different message for black and Latino voters. The message is, we want to get you back to work so you don't need to come to the government for anything. And guess what? Under Donald Trump's leadership, it works. Record low unemployment for blacks. Record low unemployment for Hispanics. Record low unemployment for, uh, for, uh, women. Just about every demo, or every demographic that you can find, they are all doing extraordinarily better under Donald Trump than they ever did under Barack Obama, the first black president. So I just found it really interesting to hear the question for the Democrat uh, uh, on the Democrat debate last night. Democrat just admitting Democrats rely on black and Hispanic and Asian votes. They rely on minority votes, uh, and yet there's a whole bunch of white people up on this stage. What does that say? What's the message? Well, the message is what it has always been: Democrats exploit African Americans. They actually contribute to their suffering and to their slower growth. They contribute to their lower graduation rates, lower employment, et cetera, et cetera. They contribute to it because it keeps them coming back to them for more. And then they're able to say, look who gave you this stuff. Look who gave you the, the subsidies that you needed. It's us. You've got to keep voting for us. Republicans don't want anybody coming to the government for anything. 
other than what the government is supposed to provide. Opportunity and infrastructure, military and security, and that's about it. Republicans and conservatives want blacks and Latinos and Asians and everybody else to make it on their own. To set the conditions so that everybody can succeed and achieve to their heart's desire. Democrats continue to appeal to the needs and the necessities of people saying you can't do it on your own and you shouldn't have to. We'll do it for you. That's why they count on black and Latino votes. And the other big point to that, obviously, as uh, mentioned, (laughs) maybe there's a message here about Democrats. If you're not happy with the ethnic makeup of the debate panel last night, there's not only a whole bunch of white people, with the exception of Andrew Yang, well, then maybe you need to look at yourself. Look inward. Where's racism live? Where does racism live? In the same place it has always lived. Going back to the civil rights movement, and going back to Jim Crow, and going all the way back to the days of slavery. Racism lives in the Democrat Party. Congressman Jim Ardacey joins us after this on AM 1420 The Answer. Articles for disposition to the Senate after being passed in the House is incredibly dangerous. Just think for a moment. You pass articles of impeachment in the House, you refuse to send them to the Senate until the Senate constructs a trial uh, of your liking as Speaker of the House. We have separation of powers for a reason. You can't be Speaker of the House and Majority Leader of the Senate at the same time. Senator Lindsey Graham laying it out to Nancy Pelosi. In case you weren't familiar with the rules, you can't be in both chambers. You can't be Speaker and Majority Leader at the same time. And yet that's essentially what Nancy Pelosi is proposing, uh, that uh, they're not going to send the articles of impeachment over to the Senate until she is convinced that she likes the way the trial is going to be run. Ted Cruz weighed in, too. Democrats are in a panic because in the last month, their case collapsed. I mean, rewind back to, to a month ago. A month ago, every Democrat was saying over and over and over again, bribery. Remember, that was their mm-hmm. talking point, bribery, right. bribery, bribery. The reason was the Democratic Campaign Committee, they, they, they polled that, and their focus groups had told them, yes. bribery's bad. The American people don't like bribery. And so in one day, every Democrat began saying bribery. Here's the problem. The facts, the actual evidence doesn't support bribery. As they heard the evidence, oh, they couldn't prove bribery. <laughs> and they've now backed away from bribery. They backed away. Remember quid pro quo? Yeah. That was their favorite mm-hmm. phrase. And was- they backed away from all of those things because they couldn't prove any of it. So they went with a very generic uh, abuse of power, obstruction uh, of Congress. And away we go. And now they've, uh, and I think the best analogy I've seen thus far is, uh, from Mitch McConnell. I think it was Mitch McConnell who said it's like the dog that caught the car. Doesn't know what to do with it now. They got their impeachment and they don't know what to do with it. We're joined now by uh, a former Congressman Jim Renacci from Ohio's 16th Congressional District, now working with Ohio's Future Foundation for reaction to the impeachment story and more. Congressman, good to talk to you again. How are you, sir? Good, Bob. How are you? 
I'm good. What do you make of this, Congressman? That uh, that you know they could not wait to get their impeachment articles passed. This is a pressing concern. It is absolutely vital that we get this danger to the United States out of the Oval Office. We have to impeach him. Our country's national security is in peril. Our system of democracy is in peril. We've got to get rid of him. So, Congressman, they pass the vote, and now Nancy Pelosi says, "Yeah, we may not get rid of him because uh, we don't like the way the trial is going to go." Well, Bob, as I've said all along, this is political theater. It's done on both sides. Um, you know, Nancy Pelosi has a game plan that she's rolling out. She probably knew she wasn't going to send those articles over. Um, in the end, this is a way just to smear the president for the next, you know, few months, hoping that uh, they can delay this and and hopefully get past the prime, the presidential primaries for the Democrats. I think this is an all game. This is a game plan that's all laid out. This will be a smear campaign. It goes all the way through November. And the sad thing is, and I don't know if you've seen my Facebook post, I get so frustrated with it because when you lived in that political theater and you left because of the political theater, you start to realize that it happens on both sides and we're missing the boat. And then we pass this budget bill right in the middle of all this that you say, wow, has anybody paying attention that we just borrowed another trillion dollars? And then we turn around and pass a, which is again political theater, we pass this this new trade bill, which should have been passed six months ago, also political theater, because she needed to make sure that those Democrats that are in Trump districts have something positive to talk about over the holidays. All laid out in a political theater plan, but who's losing in all this? The American people, as we continue to spend away money we don't have. We'll come back to the spending bill in a moment, but uh, staying on the impeachment part of this uh, uh, first, um, what what is your message to the American people? Um, because I think you're right. Uh, they know they cannot remove him. There's not one Republican in the Senate, not even a Susan Collins, not even a Mitt Romney, are going to vote to remove the president on these shoddy, next to invisible charges, uh, completely unprovable and uh, with no evidence whatsoever other than, than second and third hand hearsay evidence. Uh, what message do you have for the American people who are going to be hit over the head with this for the next few months that you can't vote for this man for re-election? He was just impeached. They know they can't remove him, so they're going to try to just kill his campaign with the message of impeachment. Bob, it's interesting. No matter where I go, I was at a dinner last night, and people start bringing this stuff up, and they always look to me. And, I, and my, my first response is, Look, you may not like what he says sometimes, and of course, I don't either. You might not like the letters he writes or tweets he makes, but you have to love what's going on in the economy. You have to love the way the country's growing. You have to love the way he supports the military. You have to love the way he's changed our judicial system by putting judges in who are now going to have a conservative position. And that's what you should vote for. And 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 people get it. They get it. And uh, it's amazing. But one thing I will tell you, if you hate Donald Trump today, yesterday, you hate him today. If you love him yesterday, you love him today. This race, the real problem is this is going to come down to a very small majority in the middle who aren't paying attention, which are many times I call those independents who hate the party system and don't pay attention to the end. And uh, I just hope he continues that we can continue to get that message out because most people do love what's going on in this country and their economy and their paychecks and the, and the stock market and all of those things. And, and it's the economy, stupid, as uh, 
I think Clinton and others have said in the past, I think that's what's going to be the driving message. But don't you think it's more than that, Congressman? Because there's the issue of fairness, fundamental fairness, that I think is driving a lot of people. When you say that if you loved him before, you're going to still love him. If you didn't before, you're not going to. I don't know if I uh, agree 100%. And the reason why is you look at the fundraising. He, he, his campaign raised $5 million on the day of impeachment. And the RNC was at the same time raising another $5 million. They made $10 million in 48 hours as he's being impeached. I, and his poll numbers are starting to, 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 uh, climb very, very rapidly. Uh, I feel like there's a lot of people who are going to support him and are supporting him financially and otherwise, even if they weren't before, because they just don't like this process, the unfair process, the lack of due process, to be precise, that the Democrats afforded him in the House of Representatives. Well, it's interesting, Bob, if you look, the DCCC just reported record uh, fundraising, too. So, um, again, both sides are taking this to their advantage and using it to their advantage. And yeah, the president, right? The president's the president. He's going to, he's going to be able to raise that money. It's the power of incumbency, whether you're a U.S. congressman, a senator, or a president. You know, you're going to get that, that, that bump, especially in this. But remember, DCCC just reported record fundraising numbers, too. I was just reading it yesterday, the day before. So in the end, this but not one candidate, down. though. But not one Democratic candidate, Congressman, is is go- doing anywhere near what Donald Trump is doing. Like I said, and especially on the day of impeachment, did impeachment of the President of the United States turn people away from him? No, it made more people throw money at him because they are disgusted by this. But what's interesting, Bob, and again, this is what's always great about some of our conversations. If you add up all the Democratic candidates that are running, they're probably doing just as well. Which is one of the problems with having. A primary, because what happens is the Democrats are split. I mean, it's good for the president because the Democrats are spreading their money between multiple candidates and the president is the only candidate. So in the end, it was the same thing. Of course, if you go back to Hillary Clinton in in, uh, in the last election, she was doing the same thing. She was raising all the money while the Republicans were splitting all the money. She lost. So always got to be careful when you look at just the money. Um, it's got to be the message as well, and I think that's what's important. Well, I agree. Uh, it's not just the money. That's just a pretty good indicator. But I think, again, the surveys, too, and these are Gallup polls. These are not push polls by right-leaning or anything like that. Organizations indicate a climb in his approval rating as he's being impeached and uh, less and less Americans uh, precipitously supporting his removal from office. So I think it's uh, I think there is a rally to President Trump here that is very encouraging. Let's let's pivot to that spending bill now. It had the first package passed 297 to 120 on domestic spending that's the one that also raises the smoking age to 21 for some strange reason what that has to do with spending i don't know uh the second one is the defense uh, uh appropriations that passed 280 to 138 so bipartisan support for this 1.4 total trillion dollar spending omnibus bill it's going to pass the senate as well and president trump has no choice but to sign it doesn't he well, I don't know. Again, that's always the answer, and, and I hate to be political, you know, think like this, but you're right. Politically, he has no choice. But what is right? This is the problem. Do we do things that are politically right, or we do things that are right for the nation? I am still concerned that we seem to have forgotten that this $1.4 trillion bill is going to be one, and if you look at the numbers, $1 trillion of that is borrowed money, because we have already used up the money that's come in in the treasury for this year because we're so we're going to have we're going to have an excess of a one trillion dollar add to the deficit this year so what is right when do you finally say enough's enough now it's interesting politically they split the two bills 
and they put the military spending in one bill and the you know the uh, you know all the goodies domestic. and uh, and domestic spending in the other bill because they said I dare you Republicans to vote against the military bill again a political move some Republicans still had the courage to vote against it because they said look I want to take care of my my troops and I want to take care of my military but at the same time. I'm not, I can't do this to my children and grandchildren anymore. So there were some that voted against it. And then if you notice, there was a different group that voted for or against the other bill. But it's all political theater. But at the end, when does it stop? I don't know. I mean, like, I love what the president is doing. And you know I'm a big supporter of the president. But there are some things I don't like. And it's this spending and spending and spending because I still believe we have to start thinking about our children and grandchildren. And some t- so for some reason, we only think about, especially the politicians, the next election. But if you're thinking about the next generation or 20 years out, shame on this $1.4 trillion, whether you vote, you know, even for the president signing it. Because someday we're going to look back and say, how did we get into this mess and how do we get out? Well, I, you don't have to tell me twice because uh, you and I have had have uh, debated in the past when you were in the uh, in the House uh, about some of these bills that you kind of felt compelled to vote for, even though you didn't like it, for these reasons. I opposed them then, and I oppose it now. But I, I, my question to you is phrased the way that it was, that the president has no choice here because of impeachment. My, my thought process being this. If, you know, last year when he did not sign it, there was a 35-day government shutdown. If he doesn't sign this $1.4 trillion bill now and shuts the government down again, he's going to be accused of shutting down the government so that the government cannot conduct his trial and remove him from office, that he's using the power of his office to stop himself, to save himself from potentially being removed by the Senate. Uh, we can't shut down the government when we're in the middle of an impeachment situation, can we? Well, Bob, here's the only thing I would say. If you vote your conscience and you've signed, you know, everything is about consciousness, what's right, and not political. See, and you just explained politically why he shouldn't do it. Now, the one thing he could do is he can sign the military spending bill and not, and not sign the other one and say, I'm just thinking about my children and grandchildren. I think in the end, people, it just depends on how this is. Look, everything is about how it's presented and how it's put out there. I still continue to say somebody's got to stand up and say enough enough i'm not going to do it and that might be his way of doing it but i think politically it is in his best interest to sign both but the right thing to do is to say enough's enough and i think at some point in time we need our political leaders to do the right thing which sometimes means you lose the election and i, I feel oh, i feel like sir we're 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 in that that you know definition of an insanity though um we we repeat the same action over and over again expecting a different result if he doesn't sign the domestic one uh, aren't we in the same boat if the government is shut down or there's a partial shutdown it sits for two three four five six days maybe even two three weeks maybe even 35 days like last time and eventually uh you know you got to come in and just sign a, a cr and and get everybody back to work um I, I i just feel like we we've we've been down that road so many times before i don't know what it'll take to change it well the one thing i will tell you and i know you said we disagreed i think i signed i think i approve i think i voted for two spending bills over my mm-hmm. career I got a call from a couple of my um, colleagues that were on the, uh, you know, voted for the spending bill, and they go, "Hey, Renacy, at least they didn't have to worry about your no vote." And I go, "You're exactly right," because I was pretty adamant. I mean, there were times I voted for it for certain reasons, but I got to tell you, probably 95 percent of the time, I did not vote for these spending bills. 
And I used to say, I don't care. And they go, well, it's because you, you know that the government's going to stay open and, and there's going to be people voting for it. I go, no, I'm voting because of my children and grandchildren. And I think I still say, yes, we're in the same boat. We're doing the same thing. But you just hit the nail on the head. When does it stop? When do we say enough's enough? And this is where I get so concerned because this day, the day of reckoning on our debts and deficits is coming. If we think we have a problem with China, and this is what I love about still getting out because people don't realize this, our largest debt holder is China. And yet we're, you know, we're a trade war and a battle with China, yet we're borrowing more money from them. I mean, it's just weakens every position. China's not stupid either. They are lending us money knowing that at some point in time they're going to control us. And we've got to be careful. We just got to be careful. Does the pending trade deal that the president is agreeing to uh, with China? That I, I mean, I cannot imagine this isn't going to be to our benefit, and perhaps drastically so. But otherwise, he wouldn't have undertaken this. It's such a big thing, you know. He put a lot of people in peril, uh, farmers and so on and so forth. When we had all of this, you know, these uh, tariffs uh, levied and and this this war back and forth. Once this thing is finally settled, I would assume we are going to make more money than ever before in our in our dealings with uh, China as it pertains to trade. Will that help uh, reduce the you know our obligations to the Chinese? Well, I hope if we get there. Look, again, don't know all of what was passed. If you notice, he said he did a partial trade deal. A lot of the details aren't out there. I right. still think there are a lot of tariffs out there that are that are pending. I still think that we're still in negotiations, and I still think China has the upper hand. I would rather have our president in the position he's in because I know that he wants to fix us, and he's the first president that's ever really stood up to China. Yeah. But I don't think we've we've got the fix yet. I think we're at a pass where, look, I mean, I hate to say this, but I think the president's starting to think about the next election, which get, makes which makes him that political person that we all don't like. Yeah. Because uh, he started to back off a little bit on tariffs because he knew, hey, wait a minute, it's election year. Um, that's why I kind of chuckle. Wait and see what happens after he gets reelected because then he doesn't have to worry about getting reelected four years from now and that's when i think he really you know makes some major changes against china now it'll hurt all it'll hurt americans but at the same time it's a short-term hurt a short-term pain for a long-term gain and that's what i like about this president he is thinking about the next generation when it comes to we got to fix this deal with china Congressman Jim Jim Renacci, just an FYI, I just noticed on the president's Twitter less than an hour ago, he says, quote, I will be signing our $738 billion defense spending bill today. Uh, He does not say anything about the domestic bill, just the defense one. So maybe, who knows, maybe what you suggested would be his way of going forward here. Sign the defense one, but not the other one until some changes are made to it. So uh, we'll we'll, uh, we'll have to wait and see how that works out. Congressman Renacci, thank you so much for your time. Great insight and analysis on the impeachment scenario as well as the uh, uh, the spending. We appreciate it. I hope you have a wonderful Christmas, and we'll talk to you in 20, uh, 2020. Thank you, Bob. You have the same, and your listeners, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year. Thank you so much. God bless, sir. That's Congressman Jim Renacci on AM 1420, The Answer. We'll get a quick time out and come back in with more of your calls guest-free the rest of the way if you want to join us on AM 1420, The Answer. Fifty 
7. I've got three good minutes before the top of the hour. Let's try to squeeze in a couple of calls so that we can start the next hour fresh. Let's go to Tabitha, who's been waiting in Cleveland through our interview. Tabitha, good morning. Good morning to you. Thank you for taking my call. My Can pleasure. Um, yes, you spoke yesterday about the intent of an eye for an eye. I was under the impression that it's to restrict compensation to the value of the loss. Years ago, when the Bible was created, everybody was killing everybody for even minor infractions, just as is happening now with Islam. They'll kill for anything. And so this is temperance, in my opinion. And I think it's the same on uh, the Internet, if you look it up. The second thing is that is it possible for the son, Hunter, to have arranged something with the USS getting the U.S. getting oil from the Ukraine once his father takes office? Is it That's possible for – hold on, I'm going to make sure I understand that. You're asking if Hunter Biden could do what Could if his father takes office? Uh, if Hunter Biden was getting paid as much as he was getting from the Ukraine, right. and worth nothing, maybe it was in a, um, to make a deal that once his father takes office, Ukraine would get oil from America. I'm sorry, America would get oil from the Ukraine. Oh, okay. Um, I, 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 obviously, I don't know. My, my, my own response to that, my own uh, speculation would be no. That is probably not something that is uh, is part of any uh, uh, dealings that were going on between them. In large part because uh, we're in a better position uh, with respect to our own energy. We are a net exporter of energy now rather than an importer for the first time in American history. Um, I don't think, and, and not to mention, you got to remember, all of the dirty dealings that Hunter Biden had going with his company Burisma and the Ukrainian government was with the former Ukrainian government, the corrupt Ukrainian government. That's pr- precisely why President Trump, on his phone call with President Zelensky wanted to ask, is all of that stuff over with? Um, he was elected, supposedly, Zelensky was, as a reformer uh, that was going to get rid of you know some of those things that have been going on under the past government. And that's why the president asked, we need you to find out what went on with uh, the former government of Ukraine and their attempts to meddle in our election, which they did, uh, and what was going on with this, uh, this crooked company, Burisma. Because we have reports of all kinds of nefarious goings on here before we, uh, you know, move forward together with our partnership, we need to know. So I, I think most of what you're talking about, uh, is, is water under the bridge, if you will, uh, or over the dam. I don't know. Mix your metaphors up there. But, uh, because there's a new government in Ukraine now, and I don't think any of that would be in play. I appreciate your phone call. Thank you so much. Uh, if you're on hold, stay on hold. I'm coming to you. And I think we're going to talk to Dan Ramada as well. Should I introduce him as being Dan Ramada of Act for America? Maybe not. And if he calls me, I'll let you, I'll let him explain what that means. Your call's coming up right here. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.